Hello and welcome to our next episode on the Book of Romans. Today we're going to continue working through Romans chapter 12. In the last episode we covered the first eight verses where Paul shifts in his tone to take on a much more practical approach in his writing. And just so you know, this isn't a shirt that just says the Bible. It says the Bible is not about you. So this is my favorite shirt. So we'll keep that in mind as we go through this text. The first 11 chapters of the book that we talked about last week set up a that necessary theological foundation, the truths that come into application in chapter 12. Uh, we get a lot of practical application of that theology. The last episode covered the verses that we are likely most familiar with. And when we closed, we covered the verses where Paul provided a practical outline of some of the different gifts of service that the church can use to be living sacrifices. And so we'll pick up at verse 9 and read through verse 13 right now. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Okay, so this section opens up with a phrase that we really like. Let love be be genuine. But what does that mean? A lot of teachers will reference this verse and then insert what they think genuine love looks like. Genuine love looks like X, Y, or Z. But Paul, in the following verses, tells us exactly what genuine love looks like. And it starts with having God's view of things around us. The immediate follow-up to that statement, let love be genuine, is this. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. We don't like to talk about this side of God, but there is a very real hatred that God has for wickedness and sin. And we are called to have that same view. The word abhor in the Greek means to separate oneself from that thing, and to do so almost in a state of horror and disgust. So practically, when it comes to sin in our own life, we are supposed to have God's view and abhor it, to separate ourselves from it. And when it comes to things that our culture loves and celebrates, but that God calls sin, we are supposed to maintain God's view of those things and not be conformed to what our culture thinks or recommends for us. God hates sin, and so we hate sin. We still lovingly offer the gospel and call people into the grace of God, and we do that with love and grace and truth, but we don't excuse sin or make light of wickedness. Hand in hand with that, we are called to hold fast to what is good. The Greek here for hold fast literally means to be bonded like glue. Genuine love hates evil and is bonded with good. We love the things that God loves, which brings us to the following points from Paul. Genuine love, according to Paul, is brotherly love between one another, where we try to outdo one another in the love that we show to each other. Now, the word here in the Greek for brotherly love should be familiar to us. It's Philadelphia. That's, that's why Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. But this word is so crucial for us to understand what Paul means here. In our modern context, we do, we do such a disservice to the word love. We love all kinds of things like our spouse or pizza or sports or God. And we use the same word to describe all of it. We love 
all of those things. And we get a little closer to understanding it when we add the description of brotherly to this term. But even in our modern context, we tend to think of this like a bromance as opposed to what the word actually means. This word points to a type of love found between family members, a father and a mother to a daughter or son or siblings toward one another. It is this permanent bond that you're supposed to find between family members. And unfortunately, we don't often see that in our culture. Family members are expendable. We love our friends and our things. And then when it comes to our family members, we take them for granted. While this brotherly love is meant to be the proper familial love where parents tenderly love and care for their children and siblings look out for one another through thick and thin. It's that permanent bond of love in a family unit and that is supposed to be what the church looks like. That's the genuine love that Paul is pointing us toward here. And on top of the love we show to one another, we are also expected to serve the Lord with passion and fervor. We rejoice in the hope of our Savior. We are patient in the trials and tribulations we experience due to our hope in our Savior. We are a people known for our constant prayer and dependency on God. And we care for each other by contributing to the needs of the church. This is what genuine love looks like for those in Christ. But Paul goes on. So let's wrap up chapter 12 by reading verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, in continuing this thought of practical application and genuine love, Paul continues to outline practical ways in which Christians are expected to live now that they are saved. The world has its own way of thinking about these things, and Christians have another way of thinking. Love to the world looks like self-care and treat yourself, and definitely not blessing those who persecute you. Now on the topic of persecution and trials and tribulations, we often lose sight of what these words meant to this audience because in the 21st century, especially in America, the trials and tribulations and the persecutions that face us are nothing compared to what the church faced at this time. For us, trials and tribulations looks like, oh man, someone said something mean to me. Someone's persecuting me by gossiping about me or by saying something mean about the church or this politician said something that was uh, unchristian and they're persecuting us. Or maybe it looks like government overreach into the church where services are forced to close down due to COVID-19. And that's a very real example in our age. And while that certainly is a form of a trial, the persecution that this church was facing was more along the lines of, oh, you're a Christian? I guess we get to beat the crap out of you and then kill you. Oh, you're a Christian? I guess we get to starve you in prison and then eventually crucify you publicly. It's a very different form of persecution. It's actual persecution versus what we face today. My dad had this uh, saying in our family growing up. He would, he would kind of look around us if we had a family gathering and he would say, family... 
We got it made. And I say the same thing to the church today in America. Church, we have got it made. The persecution that we in America face is nothing compared to what Christians in Rome were facing at that time. And it's nothing compared to what Christians face today in China or Iran or many other countries across the globe. So before we look at Paul's statement of bless those who persecute you and think, well, Becky always talks behind my back, but I'm going to pray for her anyways. I mean, that's great. You can pray for Becky. But think about what it takes to bless those who are actively trying to kill you. That should shift our perspective a little bit. In addition to that, we are called to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. What this says to me is that the Christian is supposed to be selfless. We take on what those around us are taking on. If we have a friend who gets an exciting job offer or they share news that they're pregnant or they have a really cool life thing that just happens to happen to them, we rejoice with them. Even if we don't have the same level of exciting news or we are somewhat kind of internally jealous of their job promotion or that they're pregnant or whatever it might be, we rejoice And the same goes for the opposite. Someone is laid off or they share news that they've had a miscarriage or they've had really bad life things happen to them. We weep with them. We don't step aside and say, well, I can't, I can't take on your burden right now because I've got my own stuff going on and I don't want to be brought down. That's not a Christian mentality. We are called to be selfless, to put off what we are experiencing and take on what others are experiencing so that they have someone to rejoice with them and they have someone to weep with them. We must be selfless in our own lives. We might not always feel like rejoicing with the people around us. But we do it anyway, because our love for them is genuine, and we really are excited for their opportunities. And I don't know anyone who looks forward to weeping with those who weep. But we do so anyway, because we love them so much, and our love is so genuine that we actually feel their pain. The simple call of a Christian is not to fix the problems facing these people, it is simply to meet them where they're at, and experience it with them. Rejoice with them and weep with them. And in that, Paul tells us to live in harmony with one another. Specifically, Paul is still talking about the church. Now, this doesn't mean that we are called to avoid all conflict and let sin go unnoticed because calling it out might cause disharmony. What this means is that we are called to think and to be wise and to go about life in a harmonious way, which means that we adjust and we adapt in a mutually submissive way where we love one another. Paul also encourages the church to continue associating with the lowly. One of the reasons Christianity was so attractive to a wider audience at that time was that it was so inclusive for groups that were typically thought of as less or discarded. Groups like women or slaves or the poor. The statement goes hand in hand with the command to not be haughty or prideful and to not think that we are wise in our own sight. Our wisdom would tend to have us gravitate more toward the desirable groups like the rich and famous because they're able to carry more influence. And if we can just snag a celebrity, think of all the people that they could win over to the gospel with their wealth and their fame. But the beauty of the gospel is that it's available to all and we are responsible for carrying that message to all without partiality. Next is a command that many in the church have completely forgotten. We are told to repay no one 
evil for evil, but rather to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Today, culture, and sadly much of the church, balks at forgiveness. Rather, if some individual or some group or some societies and cultures, whether they be present tense or far, far in the past, if these, if this person or group or society committed a great evil, the thought today is, well, to properly balance the scales of justice, we need to do a great evil to them. Only we don't describe it as a great evil, we describe it as justice. But even if you're doing it in the name of justice, sin is still sin. And evil is still evil. And the church should have no part in that. We should actually, as we saw earlier, abhor what is evil. We are called to live peaceably with those around us, not seeking vengeance or repaying evil people what they have done. Not because we're passive, but because the message of hope we carry is more important than us getting the last word in an argument or us getting what is owed. On the contrary, Paul says that we are to love our enemies by feeding them and offering them drinks. And in so doing, Paul says we heap hot coals on their heads. Now, a lot of people read this and think that by putting hot coals on someone's head, Paul is implying that if we're nice to evil people, they will feel guilty and they will repent. And that is certainly a possibility and it has happened many times, but that's not what this phrase means. In this culture and in scripture in general, burning coals always means punishment. What Paul is saying in this context is that we are called to love the people around us regardless of how they treat us. If someone is evil, we don't get to do evil things to them. We can defend ourselves, and sometimes that means proactive defense. So again, Paul is not saying we should be passive. And the heaping of hot coals on their heads more likely refers to the punishment that they will receive by God, and that is being piled on them. They may continue to be wicked, and God will continue to heap hot coals on their heads. And he will faithfully and rightfully enact their punishment due to their wickedness. But the call for Christians is not to take the punishment that God will rightfully dole out and think that we are somehow judge, jury, and executioner. Vengeance is God's. He will repay and offer the righteous judgment on those who reject him. Our call is to overcome evil with the goodness of God, the gospel, the good news. And so that should be our motivation rather than vengeance. And that is it for chapter 12. Uh, this is such a rich chapter in terms of practical theology, so I hope it's been beneficial for you. By no means am I claiming that we have fully exhausted Romans chapter 12. Hopefully you don't hear me saying that with anything that we study. Um, there's a lot more in here, and I know that there are several things that jumped out to me in my study of this chapter that I had not seen in that way before. Um, so hopefully that happened for you. Let me know your thoughts. What jumped out to you? What do you like? What do you disagree with? What do you agree with? What challenges you? Uh, what is hard to hear and listen to. Uh, let me know what you think about Romans chapter 12. And as always, thank you for tuning in. May God bless you, and I will see you soon.